Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Yvette. And I'm Cynthia, and you're listening to episode three. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw critical analysis of the law, current events, and personal politics. On this episode, we'll be talking about the murder of Philando Castile and the recent jury acquittal of the cop who killed him. For our deep thought segment, we'll be talking about juries, why they're important and relevant to people of color. And for our case segment, we'll be talking about Batson versus Kentucky and the doctrine surrounding whether or not race is a valid reason to strike a juror. Before we start on our first segment, we just wanted to take a moment to recognize and hold space for a couple of events that have happened recently that we won't have time to talk about uh, in more depth. First, we wanted to talk about Charlena Lyles, who was murdered by the police in Seattle. Um, She was pregnant and her children were present. Uh, She called the police for help and ended up being shot. Also, we just heard about uh, Nabra Hassanen, who was murdered and a Latino has been arrested for the crime. Nabra was a Muslim woman uh, actually uh, in Ramadan and going to get a meal um, before fasting recontinued in the morning. And we cannot ignore that this may have been a hate crime by a Latinx man. Also, ICE recently raided the humanitarian camp No More Deaths. Um, which gives water and food to immigrants crossing the border that saves their lives. And uh, it's important to note this because historically there's been kind of an agreement or an understanding uh, between ICE and the No More Deaths camp that they won't raid the camp. And it just shows how immigration enforcement is escalating under Trump. And finally, today, June 19th is Juneteenth, which is the day that's celebrated as the end of slavery, which is when um, Texans finally found out <laughs> that slavery had ended a while back. Um, and of course, slavery is not like over. It's just transformed. Cool. So should we get into talking about Philando Castile? Yes. Yvette, do you want to start us off with some facts for, in case any listeners aren't, are a little foggy on the, the facts? Yeah. So uh, Philando Castile was murdered Last summer, um, he was pulled over for a broken taillight, and uh, he was with his partner and her young daughter at the time. Uh, When the cop pulled Philando over, he um, asked for his identification. Philando reached over to grab his ID, and the cop claims he thought he was reaching for a gun and shot him. Uh, What's particularly tragic about this death is that his partner Facebook live streamed the aftermath of the shooting. There was evidence of the, tra- you know, there was um, visual evidence of the tragedy that had occurred. Um, and for the first time in Minnesota history, charges were brought against an officer for an on-duty shooting. But as we mentioned earlier, the jury recently acquitted the officer. Um, and it's important for our purposes and for the Latinx community in general to note that Officer Yanez was a Latino man. Yeah, and I just want to add to the facts that um, the officer shot seven times. It wasn't just like one one time, uh, which is, I think, really just reckless um, and, and horrible. And also uh, an important part of this case was also that Philando informed the cop. Minnesota is a concealed uh, to carry concealed carry permit. And so Philando informed the officer that he had a, a gun and um, which is what many would think would say is the right thing to do and what you should do. So um, we left off talking about how Officer Yanez was a Latino man. Uh, and so, Cynthia, I wanted to start off this segment by talking about what you think it means for us that Officer Yanez was a Latino man. Yeah, and I think it's it's something we definitely need to talk about. I've been seeing a lot recently on Twitter about holding the la, the Latinx community accountable, and I agree with that. Um, but anti-blackness in the Latinx community isn't new. You know, there's always a lot of people talking about invisibility in the like of Afro Latinos and Afro Latinx um, individuals. And so, to me, like it matters very little that he is a Latino man because we are we do um 
commit acts of anti-blackness all the time just like white white people do so in that sense it's it's par for course for me it it's doesn't it doesn't seem out of the, outside the picture and it also doesn't seem like outside um the norm of a relationship between a citizen and a cop um so i think it's important i think we have to hold ourselves accountable for it but at the same time it just doesn't seem like that that surprising or that illuminating of a fact yeah i think that it's it is really important to highlight that um that he was a latino man and um i think it's also so um you mentioned that uh that th- this interaction between officer yanez and flando castile wasn't that different from any interaction between a police officer and a citizen and so and i think that that is true in the sense and uh in the sense that uh the police is a entity that was created more than anything else to protect property rights and wealth um more than human you know over humanity human rights um and then also that for colonialism to work uh there always needs to be um a group of native people that are complicit and willing to participate and collaborate with the colonizer um for colonialism to operate and i think in my mind um latinx people that join the police force are an example of that um are and i think that we shouldn't get too caught up in like the individual actions of this one latino man and you know not lose the forest for the what is that for not lose the forest for the trees not lose the forest for the trees yeah yeah you got it (laughs) (laughs) um and like just remember that like what we're talking about is the corruption of the police force as a whole um that being said it it is important to note the ways in which people of color are are collaborating um in, in enforcing these oppressive structures yeah and one thing though i will add that i like don't appreciate is that like when if this is like something that's being brought up by the latinx community to hold our community accountable um and to force us into a conversation of like self-reflection and how we need to stop like perpetuating anti-blackness within our own community like i'm down for it but when it's like white people bringing this up as a way to deflect their own responsibility and to deflect away from how like in the end white supremacy is for their benefit and others may be complicit in it but they're the, like the creators and enforcers that's when i'm just like like no you cannot use us as a way to like take away attention from your own problems yeah i agree and and i've i've seen like a you know a white professor at our school try and make that argument or imply that um that there's an argument to be made there um he was talking about another officer involved shooting that where the officer was a person of color and the victim was a person of color and he was presenting um this case to us as a a way of being like oh isn't this in like it doesn't this present a wrinkle in the conversation (laughs) about white supremacy um and it doesn't present a wrinkle (laughs) um it's like it's still about white supremacy even if there's people of color who are complicit in collaborating uh, within white supremacy just like i said earlier colonialism and white supremacy always require people of color and like native people to be participating in it that doesn't mean that at the end of the day it's not about white supremacy yeah and i think we should like at another point have like a full episode on internalized racism and how um all of this is a product like what they want right they want us to believe the lie that we can be like them that we can you know it's just like it's it's complicated but Anyways, uh, Yvette, something I also wanted to, I've been struggling with is, and thinking a lot about is, um, how do we reconcile our views, uh, like, as prison abolitionists about this verdict? Because I'm sure you, like me, feel very angry by this verdict, but I, I don't want this man to be incarcerated. Yeah, it's super complicated because... I've just gotten to this point in my life where I don't believe that putting anybody in a cage is good for either that individual or for society as a whole. There's just never a productive outcome when that's the case. 
Um, but then at the same time, like, it's just, it's so tiring to continually see violence enacted on black people and on people of color more broadly and to never see any kind of negative outcome for the perpetuator of that violence it's really one of the hardest things about being a person of color is like always needing to be the bigger person you know because it's like yeah in this instance like our values are prison abolition we don't think that putting people in cages helps anybody but and so and but then at the same time like I'm so angry at this officer and his callous disregard for black lives. Um, and so how are we going to hold him accountable? Um, you know, and it's like, it just is unfortunate that it's, it's just really hard. It is really hard to be the bigger person, um, to, to hold true to your values and to see the humanity in everybody. Um, how do I don't know. How do you feel? No, I agree with everything you said. And I think, I'm just, what I'm angry about is I'm angry about the system that constantly fails to value black lives and fails to recognize their worth um, and fails to recognize them in a way where we are seeing tons of people of color incarcerated and throw like, you know, put in a cage and the key thrown away. Um, so it's, it's, it's infuriating to not see a parallel or a mirror, but at the same time, like, I'm not interested in growing the prison system. I'm not interested in more people being locked up. So I agree with you. It's it's like I want accountability and I want something parallel that shows that you can't take black lives um, because they bad, they matter. They're they've they're they hold a lot of value. And but again, like it, that's like throwing putting him in jail right now there is absolutely with this verdict there is no healing for his family there is no repairing of the harm that was caused no addressing of it and but like let's say if he had been thrown in jail i don't think that necessarily would have helped heal either you know like all that like the harm and the violence that was caused would not have been like addressed you know these so it's just like it doesn't seem like a useful enterprise like i'm all for accountability but just not one that creates more and more harm. Yeah, and I and I think like really our struggle lies in the fact that we don't have any kind of alternative accountability mechanisms right now. So like, if he's not going to go to jail, then he just gets you know he just, uh, this officer just lives his life, um, and that's what's frustrating to me is not is like there being no consequence. Yeah, but. I, but I don't want the consequence to be him going to prison uh, that, but I think it's imperative that his, that Flando Castile's family is able to heal in some way and that the officer is changed and that he sees the error in, in his actions. Um, yeah. And the way things are now, that's, there's no proof of that at all. Right. Like what we're seeing is the reverse, which I think is what like further infuriates people and like adds like rubs salt in the wound you know like the way that his attorney are responding the way like um the police people like police community is responding like it just seems egregious i know yeah i feel like we should talk a little bit about the response yeah uh, please do on the, on the part of lawyers and um blue lives matter people so I was just really disgusted um, by a tweet that I saw with the handle Blue Lives Matter um, that linked to an article uh, uh, talking about the jury acquittal and with the caption justified. Uh, and I and there and there was also the lawyer that said that the officer, quote unquote, just wants to get on with his life. Um, it's so infuriating that these like the people who were behind this blue lives matter account and um the officer's lawyer i think are just are coming from a mentality where they expect black people to be in pain they see it as it's totally normalized to them but the pain of a light-skinned latino man or the pain of an officer is unacceptable uh, which all just really gets to the heart of what we're talking about, about how black lives are not mattered and are not valued in the society. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, it is definitely normalized and I think not just normalized, but legal. I was, one of the things that I was most upset about, and 
I guess not upset about at this point, but like have come to expect in the law, um, is just like how so much of this, like all the systems and all the things that we're like trying to call out and change are really protected and embodied in the law, right? So just for folks who, are, who don't know, um, before a jury goes and makes its verdict and like makes its decision, they are given instructions by the judge, which helps explain the law, helps, reminds them like what they have to find, just really gives them a lot of instructions. Like if you see that A, B, and C are true, then you should do this um, and all these kinds of instructions. And so I was reading through the instructions that this judge gave this jury, and I'm sure they're similar to all police um, shootings. And I'll just read a little quote from it. So it's, ta- it's telling the jury about how they have to like, they have to decide whether the use of force was reasonable. And in that, like when the, in that discussion, it tells them, Um, The determination of reasonableness must embody allowance for the fact that police officers are often forced to make split-second judgments about the amount of force that is necessary under circumstances that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving. And it's just like, that seems so prejudicial. Like, how do you as a jury, like, hear this, see this coming from a judge and then go and find that this officer wasn't reasonable. Like, the law is telling you basically that any cop action is reasonable. Yeah. And, th- like, this jury instruction reminds me of our conversation uh, from our first episode when we were talking about Utah v. Strife and how um, there's a pattern of judges and justices deferring to law enforcement and having this kind of strange respect for the law enforcement branch and in this idea that um a judge or a justice like fundamentally would have no idea what it's like to be a cop because of of the you know exactly of the wording of the instruction that people have to make split second decisions and that um as people who are analyzing the situation in hindsight that we shouldn't think or we shouldn't um yeah that we shouldn't think that we would react any differently. Um, which I think also, given the facts of this case, I think it's so strange because um, like that description would make you think that we're talking about a person actively in combat, actively in a battlefield where there's like grenades and like, const- and, like bullets flying everywhere. But um, this person was pulled over for a broken taillight. <laughs> and he had his seatbelt sh- on. And he was shot seven times. So I don't really understand where the, like, what I don't, I don't see the urgency of the situation. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and I think like, Yvette, what do you, what do you think in terms of like, um, moving, like looking towards the future? Like, where should we be? What should we be thinking about? What should we be not like trying to accomplish? So... Uh, a, like a few years ago, there was a Black Lives Matter activist who commented that if in a few years all that we're asking for is body cameras, we'll have lost. Um, and I think it's really important to note that because this was an instance where his uh, Philando Castile's partner live streamed the aftermath, right? And like that's supposedly what body cameras are supposed to provide benefit for is um, just documentation of, of what actually occurred. And just the fact of the matter is that body cameras haven't had a noticeable effect in increasing officer convictions or reducing death by police brutality. Um, and I think this is where like abolitionist groups like critical resistance and their framework is really important because um, they make a distinction between abolitionist reforms and reformist solutions. Um, and so a reformist solution is something that is ultimately a solution that's still going to either strengthen or allow for the police state to continue existing. Um, And I think body cameras are a good example of that because if you advocate for body cameras, ultimately what you're advocating for is an increase in funding to police departments because you're increasing funding so that they can get body cameras. And that in no way lessens the strength of the police and the police forces uh, across the country. But abolitionist reforms are reforms in which um, we improve policing in our everyday lives now um, towards a future, building towards a future where uh, prisons and police don't exist. 
Yeah. And before we end, um, do you just want to uplift kind of what uh, Valerie Castillo um, said? And like, I thought, I thought, you know, there was videos of her going around on social media that I thought were really powerful and really heartbreaking. Yeah, I think it is important to uplift her words. And what really touched me was that she said, uh, quote, my son loved this city and this city killed my son. Um, that's That resonated with me so deeply because I think that's part of the really painful cognitive dissonance of living in the United States as a person of color. It's like you kind of naturally develop an affinity and an affection for the place where you grow up. Um, and, you know, it's like you love the U.S., but the U.S. doesn't love you back. Um, yeah. And so I just I honor her and thank her for her words and for her fierce advocacy. Yeah, let's let's end there. Thank you. Yvette. OK, so for our deep thought segment, we're going to cover juries. Um, Yvette, do you want to just start off by saying, like, why do we even have juries? Like, why are they a thing? Yeah, so um, our jury system, as a lot of, as with a lot of other things in our legal system, is modeled after England's uh, legal system. They have juries as well, although ours um, are a bit different. So in England, a jury trial is considered a privilege and not a right uh, in the way that it is in the American system. And um, there, the like, thinking behind it is that um, if you're going to be convicted of a crime, it, the you, the people who make a decision about how to punish you should be your peers, or your peers should be reflected in the jury. Um, so, juries are they important, Cynthia? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think they are. I think beyond juries why I think this conversation is important Yvette and why I was where I got the idea from is my mom actually got called to jury service um when I was back home in LA and she was very much like oh jury service like how do I get out of this and I feel like that every time I talk to anybody about juries it's always in that context like I just got called to jury service like I don't want to go this is like I don't want to be there and I think there's very real reasons for why that's the case right and we can talk about those mm -hmm. but I just really want to stress to people like the importance of a jury and like we just as people of color as women of color like we just really need to like change the culture around serving on a jury because it it makes such a big difference and, and what pisses me off the most is that like prosecutors and the system is already doing the most to keep people of color off the juries like we don't need to help it like you know like they're already doing everything they can um so that and, and juries are important because they decide guilt or innocence you know like is someone guilty or is someone innocent and in cases and in states where they have the death penalty they're deciding are we going to kill this person or are we going to send them to jail for the rest of their lives with no opportunity of parole um and that's 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 a person's life you know and it's we've seen history has shown us what happens when you leave the lives of people specifically people of color in the hands of white people yeah and when you're first talking about the importance of juries I was a little pessimistic and I was like oh like what does it really mean to participate and legitimate this you know system of injustice but I also firmly believe that no stone should be left unturned and I think that we like we should definitely be committed to dreaming bigger than what our current legal system allows us to dream mm -hmm. but in the meantime also like if there are these tangible ways where you can plug in just like you said you know in in a very real way like you, you pointed out that it might seem frivolous to participate in it when you want so much more out of how we structure our legal system but then for the person who's on trial that's life or death and so it's not minuscule to them um yeah and if um yeah if if you feel like your perspective is an important one then it's important to serve on a jury yeah 
And I want to take just like a minute to go over the boring statistics um, that just I think are just illuminating. Um, so they've done so many studies on this, um, and there's a lot of research specifically in sent in cases with a death penalty. And so one study found that a black defendant in a in a death penalty case was nine times more likely to be sentenced to death by a jury um than a than a defendant of another race you know so and and so on top of that so they're already like nine times more likely there's like this white male dominance effect where if a jury has five or more white men like that jury like in in out of a hundred cases in 70 they will give death but if there's like black males on it out of a hundred cases, they'll like sentence death like 40 or 30. So it's like, it's, I don't know. It's just like, even just the presence, it's not, it doesn't, the study doesn't look at what was discussed. What were the facts of the case? Just like literally when there are five or more males, how many cases usually go, um, go to the, get the death penalty. And like when there are black males instead, what changes? Yeah. And I think that we should link these studies that you're talking about to somewhere on our webpage because they're actually really fascinating. Like, <clears throat> I think what was interesting about um, and the, another study that you pointed out to me was that um, white jurors are more likely to believe that people of color are lying <laughs> yeah, when, when they say, when they say if they were the aggressor and they say that they were acting in self defense. Um, they're more likely to think that they're lying, um, which, yeah, which is like the lying person of color, the untrustworthy person of color is a trope that has existed for a long time. So it's not the most surprising thing in the world, but it's wild that it's been crystallized in data. Yeah. And it's not just like, like, oh, the person who's like being charged with the crime, they're lying, right? They're lying because clearly they have something to gain by this but that extends to like the witnesses like it's not just like mm -hmm. like it i could like kind of kind of see the logic behind seeing like oh well the defendant has a lot of incentive to lie but like that ends like when you're talking about a, th a third like a witness you know it's just like really like you're even gonna just see a, a witness and be like oh no i think they're lying um and that's very much like exclusively white jurors <laughs> Yeah. I think, though, like, we're talking about how it's important for people of color to serve on juries. But I think if we're going to be responsible in this conversation, we also have to talk about their limitations and actually, like, the reasons why people of color are excluded or, like, self-select out. Um, like, uh, I think we we're talking about how much a juror gets paid every day. And it's it's very, very low and it's most certainly not going to be a full day's work. Um, so, oh, yeah. so for people to serve on a lengthy trial that's going to take place over months, like realistically, a low income person is not going to be able to participate in that because they're not going to be able to take off that much time from work. Yeah, no, there, there are very real obstacles. And again, it's not, that's what I'm saying though. Like <laughs> the system's already made, uh, to disincentivize and make impossible sometimes like people of color low-income people from serving on juries right if you can't afford to take off work you don't have anyone to take care of your children um or anything like that like the system already takes care of it so that you can't serve right like you um the like the money's not going to be reimbursing at all or covering any of the costs um so it's just like at least like I'm not saying like, oh, let's forget these obstacles, but like at least let's change the culture around it, right? Like I have a cousin uh, who I remember he told me like, oh, I'm not, re I asked him like, it was around the elections. I was like, did you vote? And he was like, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not registered to vote. And I asked him why he's like, because I don't want to be called to serve on juries. And I was just like, one, like it shows how, like, I know I've always known my cousin's really smart. And like, he was just like, I know that if I register to vote, then I become eligible to serve on a jury and they find out my information so it's like I like it's clever of him but I was also just like 
you're not registering to vote because you see jury service as like such a terrible thing and i think like he's young he doesn't have any kids like he could have served on a jury if called to one and so we had a discussion afterwards about like you know a lot of people of color end up in jail and if others like you are not signing up to serve on juries then the only people that are left are white people and he's like so white people end up locking up more people of color and I was like exactly um I don't think he's registered to vote since then but um (laughs) I I just like that conversation was really illuminating to me yeah I think like if there is a call to action here I think it's like if you're a person of color with the type of educational and income privilege that Cynthia and I have or very soon will have then you should definitely sit on a jury although I don't I think we're like automatically disqualified as lawyers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um but like if you are a similarly situated person of color then it's your you should think of it as like an obligation on your part to to serve if you're in a if you're in a position to do so and then it's also the responsibility of um lawyers to be or lawyers like Cynthia and I to change um policies around jury selection so that people get paid a full day's work and can like actually participate um in juries without being retaliated um against by their employers yeah also like especially like I always think about like how much um labor by women of color specifically goes uncompensated so it's like there's you know there's studies that show that like when you have minorities on juries, they do the translation, right? They help explain to the white jurors why when someone started crying at this question or why when someone made this facial expression, why that's not a signal that they were lying or something else. They like translate that. It's just like they deserve more compensation. Like even if we just like up the compensation for jurors, like there's just there, there's another example about how people who do all this extra work just never see that com- that fair compensation oh whoa yeah now i'm just thinking about like a totally different world where like people's emotional labor is compensated and then jury like payment for participation in jury is also reflected in in that just like you said like if someone is doing the work of engaging in like you know quote-unquote cultural translation then they get paid more money because that's so tiring Yeah. And then there's also like, besides the translation work that goes on. So there have been a couple cases um, where a juror after like the verdict will go and tell like the defense attorney or will go and tell someone like, hey, when the jury was making its decision, a bunch of people were saying like, oh, well, I know he did the crime because like black people are typically violent. And, and they'll be like, I thought we weren't allowed to do that. Or I that seemed wrong in making the decision and that's illegal that's just straight up illegal like juries are like they're not allowed to base their <laughs> decision of guilt or innocence on a person's race um but like it, without jurors who are in the room who disagree with that to then come out and tell someone about it like we don't find out like jurors they don't have to explain their decision they don't give any sort of justification like Sometimes they'll they'll fill out forms and answer questions, but it's never like, how did you make your decision? They get a lot of like secrecy um, around their decision for for legitimate reasons, like to some extent. But it just shows like the reason why we need to be in the room. You know, we need to be at the table. <laughs> There's also been ridiculous cases where like the jury like was drinking and like doing cocaine in the juror room um, and just like didn't wasn't paying attention to the case at all you know and so it just goes to share like show like they don't care what happens to this person's life you know and in that case actually Yvette did you know that the judge like the the courts decided to uphold their decision like they did not say like that was a problem they like said that was okay yeah because of how the law is set up <laughs> you told me that that's wild I'm like curious no, I don't know. I'm just curious about how they got that in the courtroom in the first place. <laughs> that's but that's neither that's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> I no, I I hear you. I hear you. Like, I, like I said, I think that it's just important to consider 
the econ- the like very real economic limitations as to why a person wouldn't be able to participate in a jury but if you're a person of color and those don't apply to you and your politics are solid then you should definitely like make an you know you should make it a point to like not get out of your jury service and and try and participate um and I think it's like especially important to consider all these things given the history. We were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but um, jury American juries used to be able to decide questions of law, which is now something that only judges decide. Um, like if there's a controversy over whether or not um, if if there if what is going to be decided is a question of law, like is is this law or not, then um, that's something for the judge to do. Um, and now juries decide questions of fact, like, did this person shoot this other person? Um, but back in the day, jurors used to be able to decide questions of law because at the very beginning of the American Republic, there weren't very many trained judges, which makes sense. And so like, a person who would be a judge probably had the same amount of preparation as a person who could be a juror. And so there's a lot more participation on the part of juries. And then as juries became more inclusive, like as white men without property were allowed to serve, when black men were allowed to serve, and when women were allowed to serve, um, then slowly and slowly they became, uh, their decision-making power was narrowed. So yeah, there's like structural and historical reasons that are like put in place to exclude people of color. So, and women of color. So yeah, yes. If you can participate, you should participate. Yeah. I Let's just end on that note, because coincidence? I think not. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> okay, so did you want to introduce Batson? Yeah, so Batson... It's a really famous case. Uh, it's, in fact, it's a whole doctrine, the Batson Doctrine. Um, but before I do, I also wanted to give just some background information. So in this segment, we're going to talk a lot about peremptory strikes, and those are at, like opposed to f- strikes for cause. So when a jury is being selected and they're disc- finding who will get to sit on the final jury, um, the both the attorneys for each side get to strike someone for cause and that's well this person is clearly a racist they said something racist just now um for example i think all black people are guilty of crimes whatever something like that that person would be struck for cause um or if someone said oh actually um the person who's being charged with this crime like i know them from high school then that person would be removed for cause And then there are peremptory strikes, which is um, you don't have to give an explanation generally for why you decided to strike that person. Um, So like prosecutors can say like, "Mm, don't like you, bye. Defense can also say, don't like you, bye. And for the most part, those aren't questioned. And for a long time, they really couldn't be questioned until we got to Batson. So Batson... Um, well, there was a case before Batson, but it was like really ridiculously hard to prove um, by those standards that the prosecutor had discriminated because you had to prove that no one, um, like no black juror had ever basically served and that like no matter what the case was or what was going on, no black juror served and that's just like kind of impossible to prove. Um, so Batson made it that once uh, someone complains like, hey, judge, the opposing lawyer seems to be making these, these uh, using their peremptory strikes to get rid of black jurors or black female jurors. They, they, they just have to give like an explanation like, oh, yeah, um, they've used the last three peremptory strikes on only black jurors. And then, so that's step one. Step two then becomes the prosecutor then has to give a race neutral explanation of why they struck them so for example um no that person told me that they would never give someone the death penalty so that's why i struck them their explanation does not have to make sense it does not have to be reasonable it just cannot be based on race 
So that's the second step. And the third step that Batson outlined was it's up to the judge to then decide whether the prosecution um, explanation was race neutral and whether the um, the defense proved their the case of racial discrimination. And so those are really like the three steps that came out of the Batson case. Oh, and one more thing I really want to mention about Batson, um, like a fun fact, I think this is super important to just highlight is that so um, Batson, when he was during his, his before his trial, when they were selecting the jury for his case, uh, he noticed that the prosecutor just like took off all the people of color, right? All the black people, he, like made them like tell, told them to go home. And so he like told his lawyer like, hey, that's not fair. Like, I want you to object. And the lawyer was like, no, no, no. There's like longstanding precedent and longstanding rule. Like, it's, no, like there's no point. And then like he just like kept looking around and saw like a white judge. His lawyer was white. The prosecutor was white. All the jurors was white. Everyone there was white except him. And he just like told his lawyer again, like, no, no, like you work for me. I'm telling you, object. This is unfair. This is unjust. And so the lawyer finally did make the objection. And because of him, because of Batson, the law changed because the lawyer, we like, I'm going to say we, because I think after law school, I'm definitely, I'm going to hopefully not be in this category, but I probably will. We're going to be so locked in a box about what's possible because like the law says this is possible and everything outside of the law is not possible. And like, it took this man, like this really intelligent, like strong sense of what's right and what's wrong and where he has to make a stand for himself to say, no, you need to object lawyer for the lawyer to actually do it and then for all this doctrine to be changed yeah i think i totally agree don't have much to add the only thing i'll say is that um for any lawyers to be i feel like this is a good the this is a good model to follow like you are not the lead on the case your client is lead on the case and it's just your job to allow you know like to allow for them to pursue their case in the way that they want to even if you think that you're like quote-unquote more wise or whatever than they are so um this is exactly the kind of uh client-centered lawyering that everybody should be engaging in yeah i completely agree um but yvette what do you think about batson in general (laughs) well i i told you the story of me getting into a very heated debate about Batson with my law professor. And I think the story reflects how I feel about it. So like, I think Batson would be good if there were a way to actually test whether or not a person's race neutral reason is legitimate or not, or if it's sincere or not. But I don't really understand how that can happen. Um, And I was in class last year, actually on my birthday. And it was terrible because I had such an upsetting interaction. But with this professor, he was talking about Batson. And he brought up how um, the there's a, a faculty member who used to be a prosecutor who said that she likes Batson because sometimes there are race-based reasons why you'd want to exclude a juror, but maybe not reasons that you'd want to say aloud. And I thought that was obscene. And I was like, what, what are these secret reasons that prosecutors have that are so wise that can't be shared with the public? And so I brought up that I think that if that's the thing and if all prosecutors know that they really do use race-based reasons but use peremptory strikes as a way to mask that then why not make it so that they are allowed to use race to strike jurors but they discuss it openly in front of the judge and the jury so that it's more of a democratic decision-making process in determining whether or not that's a legitimate reason and like you know I'm not even that invested in this idea but I but it annoyed me to no end that in practice prosecutors use race yeah and it's 
like I that comment like oh like sometimes there are race-based reasons you want to strike a juror for but you don't want to say them like that just like wait what (laughs) like (laughs) what what are you talking about also like like Batson like the so I want to talk about another case also because Batson like alone sounds like oh yay like we're stopping people getting um removed from a jury just because of their race that sounds awesome but really like it wasn't that great so there was another case after Batson called Perkett v Elm and the reason the prosecutor gave for striking a black juror and this was like the second black juror that he had like struck like striked from the jury anyways uh literally I'm just gonna quote this okay quote he had long curly hair He had the longest hair of anybody on the panel by far. He appeared to not be a good juror for that fact. The fact that he had long hair, hanging down, shoulder length, curly, unkempt hair. Also, he had a mustache and a goatee type beard. Those are the only two people on the jury with facial hair. And I don't like the way they looked with the way the hair is cut, both of them. And the mustaches and the beards look suspicious to me. And the Supreme Court said, hmm. That, you know, people of different races have multiple different types of hair. That's not based on race. Sounds good. Prosecutor, keep on doing your thing. So it's just like, if that is, you can say that out loud in the Supreme Court, be like, oh, totally fine here. Like, I just don't understand, like, what race-based, like, decisions, like, are not being said. Like, like, this is pretty egregious in my opinion. So, like, the fact that there are other things that they are choosing not to say aloud, I'm just, like, I, I can't even imagine what they are. Right. And I also, I don't know, do you think that peremptory strikes are ever a good idea? Like, in what situation would a peremptory strike be useful or good? So, um, in the cases, in, the, like, the language, the reason... So... First, though, let's just say very clearly that peremptory strikes, like, there's no reason to have them. Yeah. They are they're not constitutionally required. So if the courts, like, they could tomorrow say no more peremptory strikes. And, and Justice Marshall is what he suggested. But so the reason they're kept around is because they're seen as being, like, efficient and keeping things going quickly. Um, and when you're, like push further people say well like okay so imagine you're asking jurors like a ton of questions right and you're asking a juror like oh um you know what do you like think about this crime or whatever and they give an answer that's like fine but they're like they roll their eyes or like you ask them a question and they're like not even listening um it's like jurors like People think about like that, like where you're reading body language and it's not someone's answer, but it's just like this juror doesn't care. This juror doesn't want to be here. Like I'm going to strike them for that reason. Um, But again, you could see where like you can and also like literally district attorneys, prosecutors have sheets printed out with like when someone challenges you based on Batson you can say this and like literally on there is like (laughs) the person looked sullen the person's body language looked removed the person looked uninterested like literally there's all these reasons given so you can see how it's so dangerous but i mean you can imagine also where like yeah if someone looks like really like hostile towards you like they're rolling their eyes when you're asking them questions or they're not listening like, okay, like, maybe you don't want them to be on your jury where they're deciding the fate of a person. Yeah, I just think, like, in my mind, it's good cause to say that um, somebody appears so uninterested that you, that, like, you think they wouldn't be a responsible juror. I think that's a, that's a, like, I don't know. I'm I'm not as familiar with the doctrine around, like, what is considered good cause, but in like my version of the doctrine that would be considered a good cause like I just think peremptory strikes is just it's a mechanism for people to do shady things it to, to strike jurors for shady reasons um and I it just goes against like what like the democratic values like little d democratic values that I have in terms of like collective decision making um I think that if 
you have a reason to strike someone, you should say it aloud so that it can be analyzed. Yeah, and you know who agrees with you? Justice Thurgood Marshall. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about his dissent, Yvette? Yeah. Um, so he thinks that, or he thought that uh, peremptory strikes should just be eliminated entirely. Um, and he pointed out, uh, as we've been doing, that any prosecutor can easily assert a facially neutral reason for striking a juror. And, like, the example that you gave totally confirms that, like... This person has long curly hair. That is why I don't want them to be a juror. Um, and then, and it's like, it provides a tool. He points out that it provides a tool for giving life to a person's conscious and unconscious racism um, in, in terms of their deciding which jurors to bring on. Um, and then also that uh, given that the judge has to analyze the validity of of their peremptory strike then that also allows for their own unconscious racism to to accept that that explanation makes sense um and i think that this is just like a really on-point analysis because um if there's a system that's an inherently racist one and you have this mechanism that allows prosecutor that allows lawyers to give bullshit reasons for striking a juror like surprise surprise it's going to end up in an outcome that's racist yeah I just like when I read Marshall's dissent I was just like the wisdom like of this man is incredible um I mean maybe not that incredible given like who his companions were like they're not uh, whatever sorry (laughs) um my point being that everything he says came like is is what we're seeing today, you know, like yes, the prosecutors have biases that they are or are not aware, aware of. And guess who else? Judges. Judges also have them. And so they like and what he's talking about is what the study that we were talking about early like proved, right? Where like a prosecutor or a judge sees someone behaving a certain way and be like, "Oh, that person looks uninterested. They look kind of like sullen or distant um you know like all code for what we know today as like resting bitch face um and like but if like it was a person of color they'd be like oh this person just looks like they're paying attention or they look like they're serious but because i'm a white juror a white judge who does not interact with communities of color that looks like a sullen person to me um i don't know it's just like why don't we just listen? Why didn't they just listen to Marshall and get rid of peremptory strikes? Like all of this litigation would just be like gone and prosecutors wouldn't be able to do this. I think it's important, like, because I feel like we've been giving examples of how unconscious racism can lead to these results. But I feel like it's important to point out that there's a lot of like actively and intentionally racist prosecutors and judges. Like, I think we forgot yeah. to mention the facts of batson which i found really silly and egregious like in that case the the way that they were able to prove um, intentionality behind excluding the black jurors was that the prosecutor literally in the margin of his notes like next to each black juror that he struck would write b (laughs) um they're not the most clever (laughs) they're really not but you know and so yeah I I think it's like it's just important to call that out because I feel like it's we can't forget that there's people who are actively and intentionally racist I I feel like um the you know the hot trend is talking about implicit bias which I think is important to recognize because we do all have implicit biases but um then I think it allows I think it really quickly becomes a mechanism for for white people to avoid accountability because then they can just fall back on how they're implicitly biased or like, you know, as opposed to like, you know, no, like you were actively and intentionally trying to exclude black jurors as demonstrated by your notes. Oh, yeah. And because they know the research just like we know the research. If you don't have people of color on your jury, then you are more likely to get a conviction regardless of how good your case is so like they know that we know that and that's why i'm telling people like the prosecutor is going to do everything they can to make sure you don't get on that jury like 
you really don't need to help them. Like they're, they're doing the most. Like they're writing B if you're a black person next to your name. Um, Cause literally there have been cases of that, like still recently. Yeah. Um, and then just one thing I want to add, Yvette, I don't know. I, I think people will find this surprising is that in these cases, um, the racial discrimination is against the juror but like these jurors never find out that these cases went forward like on their behalf like it's the defendant's case but the defendant is arguing that like some other person was racially discriminated against which is like literally the only place in like all of our legal system where you can do that yeah i think that that is i would yeah i think that that is interesting and i do wonder where these jurors ended up like you said you tried to google where what like oh the the juror that we described with the long curly hair you tried to google them but no no luck yeah but i'm also like not the best like like snooper like i'm sure my best friend could do a much better job than i did (laughs) yeah um yeah and i think just to end on this discussion um there's a lot more to be said about these cases and the cases that have come most recently and maybe in another if, like episode we'll talk about them but just so folks know there has um been some more cases that has changed the doctrine specifically miller l um and that's just going to you know the, how a judge can decide whether like how a judge should decide whether the prosecution explanation was actually race neutral and and how they have to um consider uh the defense like whole argument about why it was racial discrimination also uh let's actually end on this other fun fact fun fact if you are a white juror don't worry you can also claim racial discrimination and prosecutors um the state of north carolina is actually more likely to find discrimination against white jurors than against black jurors when like prosecutors bring them up so um let's end on that (laughs) uh That's so terrible. Okay. Um, do you want to go into recommendations? Yes. Um, my recommendation for this week is an online shop called thehoodwitch.com. They also have a really great Instagram. But I really recommend it if you are in need of some stones, of some sage with lavender, of a crystal ball, a tarot card deck, they're the place to go. And their website is so informative. They also have um, like a blog where they explain like how to like clean your stones from like energy they have, how to like, like give them power, different spreads. Um, they also do horoscopes. So it's just like a great website. And like, I, I absolutely love it. And it's also like a great place to spend your money. That's, that's like a really timely piece of advice for me. Cause I was thinking recently that I wanted sage and some crystals to protect me. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> I made a joke to my partner who's white that I was, that I needed sage so that I could cleanse the sins of his ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god I love so that. Def- definitely need to buy some <laughs> um so my recommendation for this week um was inspired by one of our actually a listener suggestion julie botnick asked that we give suggestions for stuff to read related to what we talk about and um there's nothing like specific to juries that i want that i wanted to point out um today but I did do have a resource for thinking about anti how we can be better about um, combating our anti-blackness. And so Derricka Purnell um, was a Harvard Law student who was involved in Reclaim Harvard Law. And she wrote up a, a reading list for people to who are interested in in radical politics and it's called radical political action her name is Derricka Purnell and it's a lot of really great black thinkers um, and I think whose lead we should all follow if we really are committed to um, being in solidarity with our um, black brothers and sisters and gender non-conforming folks yeah um, that sounds great. Uh, there's a lot of anti-blackness within the Latinx community, and 
invisibility of black latinx um, community members yes. so i think that's important work that i and um others need to do so thank you yeah um, same yvette again lovely conversation yes it's been so great to be in dialogue with you i know uh well until next time bye bye who it is son uh, control the whole street. And when it's time to bust, they don't get caught.